Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. We've got a very important guest here. Stop if you are in the stock market. For Anastasia Amorosa, Chief Investment Strategist at iCapital, her deceptive charm is she says exactly what she thinks in her notes. It's lost in translation sometimes, but there it is, a single sentence. It's what everyone wants to talk about. You say, buy the dip in tech AI. Discuss. Tom, this time I put it at the top of the note to make sure it didn't get I lost read the at first the bottom. So I use as a headline, and I think investors should use the spike in yields uh, that are denting technology to get back into those shares, and especially artificial intelligence. Because Tom, if you think about long term, what drives shares? It's not so much. It's I mean, it's not valuations, it's not rates, but it's whether tech and stocks can deliver earnings growth, revenue growth. That's what long term drives stocks. And so that's why I think investors would be smart to look through the near-term volatility and to enter this long-term multi-year theme on any dips. Tech is a broad story, of course, as you well know. Is this just AI or is Apple a part of that story? I mean, Apple certainly is a part of that story, and but it is more cyclical versus secular. And, you know, obviously there's an AI component to Apple as well. But, you know, the type of tech companies that I think we should be focused on are the ones that are benefiting from this multi-year AI opportunity. So they have the secular tailwind, but at the same time, they're also benefiting from the cyclical upside as well. Uh, and again, I would squarely look to the AI beneficiary basket that I think you can find both of those. Just to extrapolate out, though, with the longer term implications are for other sectors outside of AI. Does this sort of decoupling and shift towards certain industries at the expense of others mean that we are going to have higher inflation or lower inflation, right? Does this boost some of these stocks or is it just these stocks are going to grow independent of any sort of macro thesis just because of the boom in AI? Well, if you think about inflation, and you know, part of what's driving our inflation today is lack of labor supply. And if we are to solve that challenge, the great thing to do is to invest in artificial intelligence that has the potential to boost productivity. So I think as more and more, you know, CFOs, CEOs, and also chief technology officers are kind of racing to boost their investments in artificial intelligence because they're trying to preserve their bottom line. I think that's what's ultimately going to provide a big boost uh, for AI companies. 
companies because there's a bit of FOMO going on right now. And it's not in the stock market, but there's FOMO amongst IT managers that more and more of them want to make sure they're investing in AI because if they don't and their competitors do, they will be left behind. I'm trying to wrap my head around what the implications on a broader level are of companies investing more in AI, a number of these very specific ones doing very well, and then a whole bunch of industries doing terribly, really getting left out, and certainly with jobs that are not going to be available, cashiers getting put out of work, for example, according to the bank of uh, to recent Fed uh, to recent U.S. data. What sectors are going to lose? That are you avoiding? as AI does sort of reigns supreme? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, anything that's related to, you know, low margin sectors like retail, for example, um, you know, that's not the space that I'm very interested in right now. But if you think about long term, you know, if you are trying to boost margins, once again, maybe you do replace some of the labor that is uh, comes with higher wages. If you do replace that with, you know, robotics, or you replace that with automation, you know, that's the way to preserve those margins. But I would say near term, you know, it's not an avoidance strategy. It's more of a preference reference strategy, you know, where do I think the incremental dollar spending of IT managers is going to go? It's on that specific theme. And that's why I say, you know, rates, bumps come and go, recession fears come and go. But this is a theme that um, managers are prioritizing for the coming years. And may well accelerate. It makes you wonder whether some of these labor deals are the last kind of labor deals we'll ever see like this, given that acceleration into those kind of things that you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think that would be a big call to make to say these are the last of the labor deals. And the reason I say that is, you know, all this tremendous artificial intelligence, potentially we're talking about it, automation, that's not going to happen in a blink of an eye. You know, obviously, the adoption of ChatGPT, for example, seems like it did happen in the blink of an eye. We got to 100 million users in two months. But it does take time to, for example, uh, you know, install automation in a factory. You know, it does take time, you know, to uh, to make sure that AI is you know, can go mainstream. So um, so I think that time is years and not quarters, John. You were saying that rate spikes come and go. And I'm just curious on the other side. Yes, there's a preference for AI. The ballast, the sort of offset in your portfolio, can it still be a bond call at a time where there is such uncertainty? And your, your call on AI is sort of independent of that in a very strong way. Yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, it's one of the things that we're going to have continue to have the highest conviction in. Uh, but at the same time, it can be the only thing. And, you know, I do think the other ballast to the portfolio has to be something that uh, provides you protection against inflation being more sticky. And obviously, we have oil prices. John, you were whispering, you know, spiking to $90. <laughs> Repeatedly. Uh, $90 a barrel. I'm pretty sure you heard it. <laughs> Just barely. <laughs> would you like to whisper into your mic right now? Buy tech and AI. I think Tom is saying something about buying tech and AI. Something but, creepy that. <laughs> yeah. But I would also couple that with energy because, you know, it's very clear that Saudi Arabia and Russia are intent on keeping oil prices elevated. And, you know, if that's the case, that I want to be in that space as well. Anastasia, thank you. This was wonderful. Anastasia Amoroso there of iCapital. Outspoken on growth, Tom, for a lot of this year. That's well, great. I didn't have a chance to talk to her on this, but I mean, Brian Belsky over at BMO Capital Markets now modeling 5,000 stolen. Brian's bullish, bulls. no. 
Yeah. Is he? Yeah. Wow. Uh, some of them are, are modeling out near 5,000 as well. Like Amorosa sounds like she's on. Isn't Brian always bullish? Yeah, like, yeah. Well, that's but, but, but Amorosa's like, so she's on the edge right. of 5,000 there. Bullish and right. I like Brian. For yeah, yeah he's been bullish you know, and right. Bullish and right. Yeah. I mean, but, but you know, Anastasia, I think, is on the edge of 5,000. We're not hearing enough of this. I'm not sure Anastasia said that. <laughs> no, she's not. Right. Anastasia's still right here. We're going to get a huge response, John. You can whisper I mean, or not. Right now, with Changing Markets, a brief from Stephanie Roth, Senior Markets Economist, J.P. Morgan Private Bank. Good luck with this data. Feroli's going to age. He's going to get his first gray hair uh, off of this, no question uh, about it. How do you, within the continuum of J.P. Morgan, look at this American economy, given the shock I see on my screen, the two-year yield, 5.03%? Yeah, I mean, it was def- it's definitely a surprise. They claims just continue to, to move lower. Granted, there is some seasonality issues within the summer months, so it's possible we'll see a bit of a reversal of that when we head into September. If you look at the overall jobs picture, what we saw last week was the kind of the opposite picture, and those are are, are, are more um, a little bit less less volatile data. So we saw quits rate continue to come down. That's now da- bound da- back down to where we were before the pandemic. You saw jobs. You know, the, the picture there, continue to, to see a rebalancing in the labor market. The three-month average in, in non-farm payrolls is 150000 which isn't that far from the, the break-even rate, especially if you factor in some of the immigration trends that we're seeing. So you believe in immaculate cooling of the job market? I think we're starting to see signs of that. It's pretty impressive. The extent to which you're seeing the job market continue to, to, to cool down, absent today's data, you're seeing wages cont- continue to soften. The, the demand for, for labor does continue to, to cool down. And I think we'll just con- just see more of this. It's been a, a pretty impressive cooling of, of the labor market uh, throughout the course of this year. If you look at the, the beginning part of this year, job gains were double what they were today, what they are today. So do you believe that the Chicago Fed is correct when the new research paper dropped where most of the effect from the 5.25 percentage points of increases that we've seen in rates uh, going back some 18 months that that has mostly been percolating through the system. It's having its effect, and it can bring us down to 2% by mid-next year. Yeah, if you look at inflation so far, it's come down quite a bit. Inflation, I would say, is trending around 3%. Their summer months also brought down the data, maybe artificially so, so we'll, we'll probably in the next couple months see it tick up a little bit. So I would say the trend in inflation right now is 3%. The right. Fed's not fighting 45 to 5% anymore. Let me stay on the markets here. They are on the move here. John Farrow into the 9 o'clock on television. I'll be with Paul Sweeney here to get to the market. Opening NASDAQ futures negative 1.1% in significant retreat, down 173 NASDAQ 100 uh, points. We go from negative 26 to negative 29 now on SPX down seven tenths of a percent. The VIX out to 15.33. Uh, Lisa, you mentioned the euro through 107. There it is. Stronger dollar. I have a 105, Lisa, on DXY. Yeah, this is a concern for Europe, how they deal with this, especially do they have to hike rates further? <clears throat> Regardless, U.S. has continued to be strong, and it does seem like the soft landing still is the preeminent issue that people are talking about in the U.S. What does that mean in terms of higher for longer and possibly yeah. not seeing rate cuts next year. Here we back. Uh, uh, yuan, 7.33 yuan is not where it was a couple days ago. So there's sort of a global follow-on here as well. What's your conviction? I mean, you've got such an eclectic team at J.P. Morgan. What is your conviction in your belief right now? Or do you feel like you could change it? September 12th CPI, September 14th ECB. What's your belief 
in what in, in your theories? So I feel good about the base case that we'll have this softish landing. Growth should probably slow in the first part of next year. But there are two tails. The tail, the one tail is that growth is better than expected in the next couple of months. And then you have <clears> the other tail where we get a, a more significant slowdown and the lags just take longer. And then that leads us to, to kind of a, a more material recession. So I feel good about the base case, but I, I think mm-hmm. you're right. There is a lot of uncertainty around those tails. Do you think that inflation can stay at 2% if the Fed starts aggressively cutting rates next year? Yes, if they do it once the, 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 the they feel really good about the, the labor market cooling. So you probably need to see the unemployment rate rise a little bit more. So that 3.8% that, that we saw, that was largely driven by supply coming back online. In order for the Fed to really be cutting interest rates, you, you need to see a little bit more softness in that coming from a more material rise in unemployment. What is that line in the sand? Is there one? Is it 4.5% the target that they were looking at in terms of where they expected this year's unemployment rate to end? I think it's a little bit, it could be a little bit lower than that, somewhere somewhere in between four and four and a half percent, especially because back then inflation was a little bit higher. Now it's come down in a, in a, in a pretty significant way. So the 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 importance of getting yeah. more material slowing in the economy is just a little bit less so. We get some free market moves here. Now negative 30 on SPX gets my attention. But Apple, Lisa, sort of moldy all day and now moldier, that's CFA talk. (laughs) Is it? I got a negative 177, you know, pre-market down a solid 3.4%, and that's off a couple days of retreat. Well, and it comes on the heels of headlines that uh, China is banning the iPhone among certain government officials. But just tying that to the economic story is really important when it comes to what this means for ongoing trade tensions between the U.S. and China and how isolated the U.S. strength is from some of that. that. That, to me, is a big question mark. I mean, the big question mark, Stephanie, is the heart of the matter here. And it comes to me, is the September meeting in play? You know, the jargon here is, Lisa reads the minutes, I don't. Is it a live meeting? Is it a live meeting? I, I, I mean, of course, every meeting is live, but I think we're more talking about the November meeting is where we're really potentially talking about another hike. Even Waller was out you know, earlier this week. He sounded a lot more dovish than he's been. It seems like the, the desire is to, to pause and wait a little bit. What you saw in the base book was just signs that there's some softening in, in the labor market. It kind of makes sense to just wait a meeting and, the, and then see our base cases that they're yeah. not hiking, though. Lisa, save me here. NASDAQ down 1.3 percent. Well, just following on this discussion around China and what's going on, how isolated the U.S. and the strength there is, Is there any knock-on effects that people aren't fully accounting for when it comes to, I don't want to say decoupling, what do they say, de-risking, however you want to phrase it, right, that we hear about between the U.S. and China? How do you model that? I think the the real transmission is that we're getting onshoring back to to the U.S., the U.S. economy, right? So production is now starting to, to pick up here. You're getting, I mean, semiconductor chip uh, facility production is, is is really strong. So the structures are have been one of the reasons why the U.S. economy has been so resilient. So at the margin, it's been a, a support for the U.S. economy in the, the manufacturing sector. And I think we, we kind of forget that China's a little bit less relevant for the global economy than it used to be. It's it's not really the, the importer of, of, of goods, especially since it's not really boosting their, their property market, and it hasn't for years. Well, but given that a lot of people say that the decades of disinflation and very low inflation were driven by globalization and by importing cheaper goods from overseas, does that reverse? And this is sort of underpinning some of the angst about higher yields for longer. I think it. I don't. I think it would take. It's a really long story, right? And we still import a much larger share of goods from China than we used to. It has come down from 2018 levels, but it, it's still quite high, relatively speaking. And import goods 
it's really a commodities channel. So to the extent that China impacts the, the global commodities chain, then that's right. that's really what goes into goods prices. So what's your run rate in real GDP now? Atlanta GDP's got like a near 6%, 5.6% number. I know you don't believe in that, but what's the math to get us to the end of the year? We're looking at about 3% or potentially even 3 higher. 3% or higher, really? In, in 3Q and 4Q, you should probably see quite a bit weaker. A couple of headwinds heading into the fourth quarter. You have student debt payments, uh, just some, some seasonal factors, and the momentum should be slower then. But yeah. Atlanta, Atlanta Fed is very much overstated, and they know the error in their model is very high at the beginning of the quarter. Stephanie Roth with us with J.P. Morgan. Thank you so much, J.P. Morgan. Thank you. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Someone who keeps track of the nth hour. We're going to get to this right now. It's so important. Michael Nathanson joins us, senior research analyst, SVB Moffat Nathanson. Michael, you guys absolutely nailed cord cutting. Where are we in the continuum? If you were talking to charter management today, how much worse is this going to get for the charters of the world? Yeah, good morning. Uh, it's an interesting question. Craig Moffat, who covers charter, would say, look, charter is becoming indifferent to being in the video business, right? So it's 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 not the business it was a decade ago, but going forward, they're saying to us, we don't really need to be in this business anymore. It's a low margin business. Broadband and mobile phone is our future. If you <clears throat> keep pushing rates as high as you are, Mr. ESPN, we can't we can't afford to actually service this business anymore. So it's bad enough for them to walk away from video, which is a shocking statement given that they have the, uh, the more video customers than anyone in this country right now. Michael, how do you think this gets resolved, this current spat? What do you think the end game looks like? John, um, I would have thought it would be resolved by today, right? I, I think the law, this goes into another weekend. The end game, if it's not resolved by Monday Night Football, Bill's Jets. I think what happens is that Disney will be dropped, ESPN will be dropped from charter systems, and that Disney will have to work extra hard to convince people who are in charter to take either Hulu or YouTube TV, right? So I think, you know, if this is not resolved by this weekend, it's a huge problem. The, the problem here is that Charter wants 
the apps that Disney is selling to its own customers for, given to given for free to charter's customers, right? So we all complain about the billing and the double, you know, the expenses of now building a new bundle. They want to give that that bundle back for free, the, the streaming bundle to their customers. And that is a non-starter, right? So the the ask is so wide from what actually Disney can do. So we're not very hopeful this can be resolved. You know? Pretty embarrassing at the moment, Michael, given that we've got tennis players in news conferences at the US Open saying they can't watch the tennis themselves from their hotel rooms. Now, when we think about losers, I'm thinking first and foremost of the consumer, the customer who can't watch the sport they'd like to watch right now without paying up for alternatives. Michael, who is the big loser out of these two sides in this conflict currently? The big, the big losers are, are both. You know, I would say to you, the bigger loser in the long term, if this is not resolved, is Disney, because this will become standard operating procedure across the industry, right? So Disney, which has a ton of fixed sports contracts, uh, will lose distribution and carriage across the pay TV world, right? So that is untenable. It's unthinkable. A week ago, Charter and the rest of the video business will say to you, look, we're indifferent. You know, we've seen other cable operators, they emphasize video. So the big losers, so John, play it forward too, will be sports leagues, right? All the leagues and all the players who have counted on TV inflation to pay their salaries, that's going to be a huge challenge going forward, right? So this is the beginning of a multi-layer problem for a ton of industries that, you know, that no one's thinking about right now. Michael, does it really point to a new model for both sports and for streaming? And it's a model really pioneered by, or perhaps exemplified by Lionel Messi and what he's doing with Apple Plus, given the fact that he is getting a chunk of that. There's the revenue, there's the upside. And oh yeah, Apple Plus signups have been off the, uh, through the roof in response to his celebrity. Is this the new model and the winning model that you foresee going forward? See, Lisa, I would have said to you, the new model is the old model. The old model work well, right? Which is you'd one place, one bundle, one linear bundle where all your sports were available, right? And for the life of us, we don't understand why the industries, both media and distribution, have not worked to make a skinnier bundle of sports. You know, John talks about, you know, Peacock and Premier League. That content should be in the bundle. When the U.S. Open's playing the first couple rounds of, of golf, I want to see it on ESPN. The problem is that the two sides have not come together to create a new bundle, and thus all the rights are fragmented. Mm -hmm. So so I am very fearful of the consumer experience going forward if it's not solved. It is suboptimal, as you guys have joked about, to watch 17 different sports apps to watch your team. Yeah. And it's and they're killing what was the golden goose. And it just it drives right. us crazy that people want to build over-the-top sports apps when the model worked in the old bundle. That was the best way to get sports. It was all there. Yeah. Michael Nathanson, buy, hold, sell. Disney, I've enjoyed from 189. Loaded the boat on my trip to Disneyland in Anaheim. 189, and we're joining it at 81. You got a rebound to 115 and an outperform. Justify your outperform. Yeah, so we upgraded it when Bob Iger came back at 90. We're down you know, 10%. The call here is that their streaming business should be a lot more profitable than, than it appears today. When they buy in Hulu, which is probably going to happen the end by the end of the year now, we think there's a lot more margin opportunity at, at streaming. Plus, the park business is close to where the stock value is today. So our call is you're buying the stock with parks fully valued and an option on streaming profitability. You know, their margins are negative 10. 
Netflix's margins of 20%. So we think that's the big difference. The bundle, really, this is a lot of noise. It doesn't matter that much in the long term because the market puts so little value on linear assets, right? Look at where Paramount trades or Warner Brothers trades. They're lowly valued companies, and that's not the call of Disney. It's parks plus streaming. Yeah, Michael, quick here because John wants to get in. If you have that yeah. where it's a parks with a bolt-on streaming for free, great. Can you generate a free cash flow out of the parks business to support the dividend, support use of cash inside? You will. You know, it's great. It's a great question. The company used to make ten billion of free cash flow. They make four billion today. Four billion is, lo- is largely parks. So you would say four billion is your support for cash flow you know, for dividends, for buyback. Yeah, it'll be a lower cash flow business, but it'll be a higher multiple business. And, you know, Tom, there are media companies that have 20% cash flow yields that no one cares about today, right? So we're looking at cash flow yields just explode and no one cares because the sustainability, as you guys have asked this morning, is certainly in question. Michael, I can't think of a CEO that is more loved, despite the fact the stock's not doing well. Goldman is down 6% year to date. Solomon gets a ton of bad press. Disney's down about 6% year to date. Bob Iger still gets all this media love. Michael, where does that media love come from? Is he doing a good job? These problems were all blamed on Chapek, who was in the job for five minutes. When does Bob right. Iger start to own some of these issues? I think, you know, our call on this is give, give Bob the 2024, right? You're turning a battleship around. The real, the real issue in our view was, um, well, John, we could spend another hour on Disney. Chapek overspent on streaming. He basically was chasing subscribers, not profitability. It takes time to turn that around. They have to buy in Hulu. But I think what we would say, and I think it's fair criticism, is that the communication out of Disney, since Bob has come back, has been very poor, right? They basically have thrown out a ton of ideas and they've teased the market without delivering on what, what the story actually is going to be. You know, truth be told, the stock is trading where it is and there's very little long only support right now, right? So I think the market has voted. Um, and our call is, look, this is about 2024 fixing businesses that should be more profitable. But John, it's a fair comment. Um, this ESPN issue, a lot of it was built on Bob talking about what he was going to do in the future. Because Disney's not been aggressively leaking their content into streaming, like yeah. ESPN anyway. But he's been talking about, we're going to do this at some point. And I think charters management's look, if you're going to do this, why are we paying for ESPN today? I could do this for another hour too, Michael. I've just been screamed yeah. at because I've got five seconds left on the clock. Exactly. Michael, thank you, buddy. Michael Nathanson of SVB, Moffitt Nathanson. Oh, let's do commodities right now. We can do this with a trillion expert. Away from just oil focus, Kona Hake is outstanding at ED and F man on the softs, on the agricultures and that. You know, Kona, you know, I, I'm really trying to cut back on my sugar consumption. Um, I, I, I'm just thrilled with Tang Zero. It's really, really helped me out with less sugar involved. And yet sugar to the moon. Is there a global price for sugar? Should Americans be concerned about a surge in sugar in India? Yeah, so we have the global sugar price that's actually um, reached 11-year highs. Um, this happened <sighs> yesterday. Um, 
And it's because we're falling into deficit. This El Nino weather phenomenon that we've been seeing for the last three, four months really impacts um, the weather in Asia, particularly those cane growing regions in India and Thailand, um, who are major sugar cane exporters. They're suffering from declining yields, and the world's just going to have to live with a lot less exports out of these two key regions. So I think that's a sudden tighten the supply demand balance for global sugar, which has caused prices to surge higher. Well, I look at the prices again, but I want to go back to what it means for Americans, because I think, you know, all of us around the table, Lisa, less sugar, John, less sugar, even I'm trying to cut back sugar. That's sort of a zeitgeist out there right now in America. Are are we going to adjust here because of higher sugar prices like we would to higher cattle prices? Difficult to see how quickly the follow through will be at the retail level. I think, um, obviously, because it's the futures price, there's going to be a time like by the time the sugar buyers actually start pricing that on at a supermarket level. So there will be some lag on that. Eventually, though, prices will probably have to raise, rise higher. Um, and then it's a question of really, it's the income elasticity. Um, how much do you actually consume sugar? Is it going to be high enough for you to actually reduce intake? Um, I suspect that a lot of Americans probably don't consume as much sugar as maybe someone in the in Africa or Asia does, where sugar is a cheap calorie, which, is, which still compounds for quite a bit of your average diet. So I do think that in actual consumption, the trend has been falling definitely in developed countries because of obesity concerns, um, diet concerns. But in other parts of the world, um, I think sugar is still a very cheap source of calorie where it's still very much part of the basket. We weren't, basket. Talk- we weren't talking about sugar yesterday. Uh, we weren't talking about it the day before, even as it surged to 11-year highs. Uh, we were not talking about rice, even as it surged to 15-year highs. We were talking about oil, and we were wondering whether this was supply side or demand side, and whether this was something that was a broader indication of activity and demand, or whether this was something with Saudi Arabia sticking their thumb on the scales. Do you think think there's something bigger going on throughout the commodity space with the price increases that we've seen in a vast number of specific sectors? Yes, I think oil... Ultimately, it's it's a linchpin. It's the um, it's the driver of most commodities, and it's the biggest component in all the futures commodity indexes. So, the fact that oil's reached um, ninety dollars per barrel is significant, and it means that um, the whole commodity index pushes higher. For sugar, it does impact it because Brazil, which is the largest sugar producer in the world, has an optionality to produce ethanol or sugar, and ethanol is influenced by crude oil prices. So there is that linkage. But I think right now, um, today, the agricultural commodity sector is is slightly um, diverged away from uh, crude oil only because we are looking at a weather market. Yeah, but Kona, I just want to take this a step further, because let's say, just putting the agricultural side aside, there is a question about whether iron ore is sending the same signal that oil is, that something is uh, maybe not as weak as people had previously expected, whether it's China or elsewhere, or if there is some other dynamic that could cause inflation to surge again in other areas. Do you think that that's a fair categorization? Um, I think one thing that is common common to the whole commodity complex is the fact that China, which has been such a drag on the commodity sector for much of this year, is really talking up the amount of stimulation that the government's going to be putting in. So that in itself can provide some latent optimism that if China starts to stimulate its economy, there will be more demand for oil. 
agriculture, metals, you name it. So I think that could be definitely one one potential. Um, otherwise, I think we're looking at pretty disparate little sectors, so ags, metals, and energy at this moment in time. Um, and crude oil's rising only because of the OPEC cutback, because otherwise um, demand is not really not really shifted so much. I'd say the economic side on for crude oil has been bearish to neutral, I'd say. And kind of we got to go. Thanks for the update. Kind of hack there of EDNF man. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Our guests have been great here, and particularly through a tumultuous August, and it was wonderful. We couldn't get Tannenbaum in earlier because he's, you know, he's got like six, he's got like six summer retreats he goes to. I mean, he handles it from Bar Harbor all the way down to, you know. He's sitting right here. You can ask him I know. about it. Well, he does. I mean, I, we couldn't get him in in August. Finally, here in September, Daniel Tannenbaum joins his partner, global anti-financial crime practice leader at Oliver Wyman, about the sum of all our fears. How do you interpret the media frenzy and lots of non-experts acting like experts about stuff you're expert in? I mean, that's not out of sync with how things have worked for quite a while anyway, but I mean, speaking of tussles, I mean, some of the reactions you're seeing out of China, I mean, let's remember China has had somewhat of a muted response to years of Trump aggression. They never really reacted to that. They've only really begun reacting in kind, whether it was paying visits with national security officials to a variety of American businesses, beginning to ban access to certain <clears throat> commodities, now potentially banning certain devices within Chinese government offices. Yeah. I, I think we're now finding ourselves kind of in, in a a true tit for tat that we hadn't seen before. And I think the government is still calibrating how to respond because right. we've had a lot of visits of U.S. government officials to China over the last few weeks and months to really try and instill business confidence and moves like what's happened yeah. this week do precisely the opposite. The tea leaf that I follow is foreign direct investment into China. You are hardwired to this debate with the clients of Oliver Wyman. Are corporations going to pull back or is it 
a figment of our 2023 imagination. Right now, the question I get from clients that we get from clients more often than not is, what is everyone else doing with China? So like everyone's kind of looking around to make sure they're not out of sync. I I don't see any pullback. You've already seen some companies begin to, and following kind of Janet Yellen's remarks, de-risk their supply chain, look to diversify. That's really where India has a potential opportunity on the heels of the G20 of trying to encourage more investment in manufacturing within India, obviously taking advantage of some of the challenges in China. But I think most of my clients are really looking to understand where they're potentially exposed. They may not be deepening any relationships, but they're also not pulling back. This is a compelling point. It's something that Leland Miller talked about. You just have to reframe where you see the growth opportunity in China. They're not pulling back yet. Does this up the ante, though? Did you get some frantic phone calls this morning from your retreats, wherever they may be, saying, you know, does this change the dial if they're willing to go after Apple, which employs millions of Chinese? I didn't get any calls on this yet today, although it's been, you know, it's early yet. I I certainly (laughs) got a lot of calls on the outbound CFIUS executive order. And there's a lot of questions. There's a lot. There's an industry comment period that's been proposed to really look at where potential investment into China uh, may be heavily restricted by the U.S., but there's a lot of questions on what that looks like. So it's certainly halting some investment, but it's not basically forcing a preemptive divestment. And just when you talk about tit for tat and in foreign investment, this data came out this morning that I thought was interesting, that the value of completed Chinese foreign direct investment transactions in the U.S. was about $2.5 billion last year. That was less than half the amount back in 2009, so this, or 2021. It was the smallest since 2009. We're looking at already something that's percolating. Do you think that the companies that you speak to fully appreciate how quickly it's moving right now. No, I don't. And again, you see actions like what happened this week on banning certain technology devices that weren't necessarily on anyone's radar. Um, You know, I think right now everyone's trying to keep their ear to the ground and try and react and assess their kind of risks and exposure as rapidly as possible. That's about the best you can do at the moment, which is really try and see where do I have the biggest potential challenges based on where China's going, Mm -hmm. based on where the U.S. is going from a restriction standpoint, and how do we not get caught in the middle, which is obviously the last thing companies want is to be ground zero for some of these issues, like some banks have been over the last few years, frankly. To shift to Europe and Ukraine and the war in Ukraine, the Indian relationship with Russia was complex, almost mystical. Is India our ally? Is India Ukraine's ally or not? Yes. I think India is walking an interesting line that'll come to a head this weekend. They obviously have a prominent role in BRICS, but they're obviously hosting G20. Um, They're trying to increase foreign investment in their country to take advantage of some of the challenges that China's seeing. And they've been taking advantage of Russia's predicament economically and buying cheap oil um, to further their own ambitions. I do think, and again, the U.S. has been somewhat reluctant, as have its allies, to force countries to choose a side. But I do think you're seeing the U.S. push more military cooperation with India, which it never had previously. India previously bought most of its arms from Russian suppliers. Now the U.S. is looking to try and diversify as an enticement to bring them really into the warm hug of, of the West's kind of side more actively. Is this the reason why we're seeing a solidification with the uh, potential meeting between Russia and North Korea and the leaders of those two nations, that we're seeing a sort of solidification in other areas? 
I mean, you know, Russia turning to North Korea, they're not turning to North Korea for advanced weaponry. They're turning to it for jet basic munitions. And I am not a military expert, nor will I pretend to be, but they're not going to the North Koreans for advanced things. They're going for the basics, which is not really a ringing endorsement for how well things are going. I do think India has an opportunity now to potentially play a much larger role in mm-hmm. the global economy, but it is walking that line. It hasn't actively spoken out against the conflict in Ukraine. It's still buying Russian oil. It's still trying to benefit from its relationship from the U.S. and be the leader of the global mm-hmm. South. You can only take that so far. Dan, thanks for the brief. Don't be a stranger. It's going to be a wild September, to say the least. Mr. Tannenbaum is with Oliver Wyman, truly expert on uh, sanctions. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.